Well, open your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. After snow and ice and a rebroken arm, we finally come to this great book. And I know that COVID stories are something we're all too familiar with, but a, a recent AARP article had one that was somewhat unexpected, at least to me. In a recent article, it was a warning to its members about falling for psychic scams due to the fear that has overtaken so many people during, during the coronavirus and the the publication told of a New Jersey man in his 50s that, that turned to a psychic when, when he needed help. And during their, their first meeting, the psychic read uh, tarot cards and uh, peppered him with personal questions. And that led to a second, more costlier session that, at which the, the woman uttered an ominous warning. You have a curse. It might be devastating to your family, and it has to be removed immediately. And so she asked him to bring her $9,000 in a pillowcase with nine white roses and nine red roses and some magnets. And she would perform a ritual and then soon return the $9,000. I guess the flowers were for her and the magnets were to spell sucker on above the guy's picture on her refrigerator. I'm not sure, but yearning for the bad karma to disappear. The, the man did as he instructed, scraped together the money from friends and a rainy day fund and his kid's college education account and, and gave it to her. And He said that his repeated attempts to get the money back from the psychic had not yielded a dime and the police refused to pursue the matter. And about five months after he gave her the $9,000 and she performed the curse removal, the current condition of the man when they wrote the article was that, that he had lost his job in the information technology field as part of a pandemic layoff, and now he was jobless with no savings. It's a sad and true story, but unfortunately it's not unique. This may shock you, but Americans spend approximately 2.2 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars a year on psychics and astrologers and fortune tellers. And according to the, to the Daily Mail, the industry is growing. The psychic industry has grown 52% since 2005, and it's expected to grow 1% a year every year after and if you were just, just if you were wondering, the highest concentration of psychics is in Florida, by the way, where 14.4% of the entire industry works, followed by California, 12% of them live there, and New York, 7%. Uh, I know you are probably thinking West Virginia, but, but unfortunately, in the mountains, we consult other spirits whenever we enter troubling times. The point is, when people face uncertain things, they look for special insight, a leg up. Uh, we do that even for simple things. We, we get the weather forecast so we can plan events. We, we want to get the inside scoop on companies so before we buy stocks, we, we watch polls to see which way political races are going, and people even consult obvious frauds like psychics to, for a glimpse of, of hope. What if I told you there was a tool that really made it possible to see into the future? Beyond that, it would allow you to see not just immediate, but, but thousands of years of it. You'd be able to see all the way to the end. You would know what is coming at the, at the very end. And what if this tool also included instructions for exactly what to do when bad times come? I mean, really bad times. Not just whenever your, your resume falls apart, but but when the world falls apart. And this tool told you how you should respond and how God will respond. And it even included a, a promise that assured you that no matter what happens, God was orchestrating everything. And He promised to preserve you if you're one of His own in all of that. It sounds like a pretty amazing tool, doesn't it? 
Well, that's exactly what God has provided, not only to believers, but to the whole world in the book of Daniel. And over the next several months, we're going to walk through it verse by verse. But before we ever get into verse Daniel 1.1, I'm going to, this morning I'm going to take you on a helicopter tour over it so you can kind of see the contours of the, uh, of, of the entire book before, before we study it. And in order to understand Daniel as a whole, I, I think that there are four clarifying questions about the book but, that we need to, to, to answer. Before we ever dive into it, uh, there, there are four uh, clarifying questions. And they, uh, I think if you answer these questions, then, then you'll, the book will be set up and, and, and you'll understand it as we, as we walk through it. The, the first one is, what is the book of Daniel? Number two, why should you study it? I mean, it's always a good question to ask. Number three, how's it structured? How's it put together? And number four, what will you learn from it if you, if you do study it? We answer those questions. When, when we're done, you're going to see where we're going, and, and you're going to find your appetite growing as you anticipate God's lessons from this, from, from this amazing book. And the first question may sound elementary, but, but I'll show you that, that, that it's not. I mean... If you want to understand the book of Daniel, what, what's the nature of the book? I mean, what is the, the book of Daniel? Is it stories? Is it, is it visions about, uh, you know, uh, statues with all different types of materials? What is the book of Daniel? And I think the answer to that question is, is threefold. I'm having some issues with my, my little clicker here the, this morning. There we go. What is the book of Daniel? Daniel is revelation from God. It is personal instruction for God's people. And it's prophetic insight about God's predetermined plan. Now I said, that may sound elementary to say uh, the, the book of Daniel is revelation from God. But, but there are many liberal scholars that, that deny Daniel even belongs in the Bible. And we won't spend a lot of time here, but, but Dale Ralph Davis started this section... Uh, 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 his section on this topic by telling an encounter during the Civil War between some northern troops and a, and a ragged Virginia private. And when the southerner was captured, uh, he actually he puzzled the, his northern counterparts. He didn't own slaves. He was, he was too poor to do that. And he didn't care much about states' rights. And so they asked him, well, what, what are you fighting for? And the southerner immediately replied, I'm fighting because you are down here. <laughs> and we have to address biblical critics because they're there, and they're in a place that they should not be. And the attacks on the book of Daniel are, are numerous. I mean, most of the, of the skeptics uh, that, that you may read about the book of Daniel uh, think that the book was, was made up in the late 2nd century B.C. as an encouragement to the Jewish people being persecuted by by Antiochus Epiphanes around the 160s. It's the Seleucid king who led to the Maccabean revolt. Think Hanukkah every year, the cleansing of the temple and the preservation of the the oil that was there. It's what it celebrates. They say that Daniel was written uh, pseudonymously, meaning a famous person's name that really wasn't him. And in this case, it was Daniel. You say Daniel wrote it in order to, to gain you know, some credibility. But their argument completely centers around the, the denying the possibility that, that there is such thing as predictive prophecy, that God could foretell something ahead of time. They say it's not possible to know the future, so the book must be written by somebody else other than Daniel, frankly, because the events recorded in Daniel are just too accurate. I mean, that's, their, that's the crux of their argument. And then they bolster that argument by saying Daniel uses Greek and Persian words that are outside of his time, and, and his Aramaic is too technical. And, and there's also historical records in the book of Daniel that they haven't found in, in archaeology anywhere, like the name of the ruler Belteshazzar in, in chapter 5. But, but again, those are secondary. The biggest complaint is the prophecies of Daniel are too correct. 
Therefore, it's, it, can't be, it can't be written whenever it was, was written. I mean, imagine that. The Bible is accurate. But Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 tells us where he gets his, his accuracy. Look at what Daniel said. It's not because he's special. He's talking about God. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. And it is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells Him. That's a good verse to remember just about your own life. God knows what you do in the dark. God also has the ability to know the future. And the Bible proclaims over and over that He reveals the future to His prophets. I mean, if God can't do that, He's not God. And of course, He can. In fact, what we read from Isaiah chapter 46 this morning, you can go from Isaiah chapter 40 through Isaiah 46, and the fundamental argument that God makes to Israel why He's God and He's God alone and not the other idols is He has the ability to declare the end from the beginning. That's something that only God can do. And so that's exactly what you have in the book of Daniel. And beyond that, archaeology has actually confirmed, later confirmed, that Daniel was written exactly during his time and and was even more accurate than history itself. And even the critics today admit that that's a problem for them. They have no way of explaining. They say Daniel was written somewhere around 200 to 160 B.C., but Daniel says specific things, knows things about history from 605 to, to, to 536. And now archaeological evidence has confirmed that Daniel was correct. An example is that Nebuchadnezzar created a new Babylon. It was something that they didn't think... See, there's proof that the Bible is inaccurate until somebody digs something up, and guess what? The Bible is exactly accurate. The other, Belteshazzar, was functioning as king when when Cyrus took Babylon in in Daniel uh, chapter 5 and 6. Belteshazzar's name is is only mentioned in Daniel. And so historians didn't think he existed until they found a previously unknown work that declared Belteshazzar was a king who was ruling in Babylon. And it turns out the Aramaic that Daniel used is not the kind of Aramaic that was used in the 2nd century B.C., but the kind used in Babylon hundreds of years earlier when Daniel was written. And the approximate... 20 Persian words are are technical governmental words, all of which are old, exactly what you would see a royal seer who who was a a government official using. And one of their favorite is there are three Greek words in the book of Daniel from Alexander the Great. Of course, Alexander the Great came way later than whenever Daniel wrote the book, so it's claimed to be impossible that for Daniel to know those words, and yet all of those Greek words are musical instruments, which often keep their original linguistic names. And so just like we use violin and cello and piano, they're all Italian in origin, and we just brought those over into to English. Alexander the Great and the Greeks just brought all of those, those names over whenever the satraps and others are called to, to, to play these instruments and and bow. But I could put all of, the, all of their blasphemous theories to rest that, that Daniel was written by someone else with one verse in the, in the New Testament. Absolutely one verse. And here it is, Matthew 24, verse 15. It's jettisons every one of those arguments that I just gave you. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place... Let the reader understand. You know who uttered those words? The Lord Jesus Himself uttered those words. The Son of God says that Daniel wrote the book, and He predicted things beforehand. And that's the end of the discussion for a real Christian. But beyond Jesus, Jeremiah mentions Daniel in his background in Jeremiah 1, 1-3. The writer of Hebrews calls... Daniel, one of the prophets, and he mentions his deeds in the halls of faith. The prophets shut the mouths of lions. 
Ezekiel confirms Daniel's work and, and confirms that Daniel was one of the three godliest men ever to live. Look, if you would, at Ezekiel 14. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by being unfaithful, I will stretch out my hand against it and destroy its supply of bread and send famine against it and eliminate from it both human and animal life, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst by their own righteousness, they could only save themselves. And notice who says it, declares the Lord God. So you have the external proof in archaeology and historical writings, which are really the the least on the list. Internal proof from from two major prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Then, Then you have the Gospels and the New Testament epistle, Hebrews. Jesus Christ and God the Father. So either Jesus, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the writer of Hebrews, and God are all liars. Or Daniel was written by Daniel about exactly what Daniel proclaims. And I think I'll stake my claim with God and not the unbelieving critics. What about you? You see, Daniel is the book of Revelation of the Old Testament. It is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New. Because it comes first, it's even more significant than Revelation. The book of Daniel sets the entire prophetic timeline of the Bible. I mean, you cannot understand the timing of the Messiah, His first or second coming without without Daniel, or His coming kingdom. Yet Daniel is unique in the fact that it covers Jewish and Gentile history. It covers the 70 years of captivity, uh, Jewish captivity, and then its divisions span uh, the whole of Gentile history. And the Bible often talks to to God's people about what's coming, but Daniel speaks directly to, to Gentiles, even pagan kings about their kingdoms and, and its end. I mean, when, when Daniel interpreted the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he, he said this. Look, if you would, at, at Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. This is God speaking to a pagan king. Your majesty, you're the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all of mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Now you would expect God to say that to somebody like David, right? But God says this to a pagan unbelieving king who has actually went into Jerusalem and taken captive his own people. It would be hard to underestimate the importance of the book of Daniel, both to Jew and Gentile. But beyond being God's revelation, it's, it also provides an inspired pattern for us to follow. It, it's inerrant, and it's inherently predictive about the future. So it's personal and it's prophetic. It's revelation from God, but it's personal and it's prophetic. It's, it's Daniel's personal instruction for God's faithful people. And it's prophetic insight about God's unfolding plan. I mean, it's personal in the fact that it shows how the Lord will protect His people and how we as His people are to trust Him. And then it's prophetic in that it declares the future Gentile kingdoms and then the ultimate king and kingdom that's coming. I mean, Daniel has individual importance as we see how we're to remain faithful as believers. And it has prophetic significance as we see how God promises to navigate all of the world to His, His appointed end. I mean, you might think of it like, a, like, like an example for us to follow and, uh, and, and an expectation for us to anticipate. It gives believers of all ages some of the greatest examples of faith in the, in the Bible. That's why you learn them in Sunday school. And it gives us the expectation of both the hard times that are coming and then the ultimate deliverance that God will bring. You see, Daniel has two goals. It will teach you how you're to live as strangers and pilgrims in a world that's not your home. It gives you direction as you face hostility. It provides tangible lessons so we can see how we're supposed to be faithful. And in those lessons, we learn how God will respond and how He'll care for us. Daniel teaches us how we're supposed to live in the future that's coming. And it tells us that before it ever tells us the future. 
that's the historical portion of Daniel. It's biblical truth direct from the mouth of God provided to us. The histories of Daniel and his three friends in the first six chapters are lessons that we're to learn for when the second half of the book arrives, some of which are still yet to learn. That's why he front loads the book with the lessons. In the second half, chapter 7 through 12, God foretells exactly what's going to, to take place. He prepares and then He predicts. He instructs us in the stories and then He informs us in the, in the visions. Daniel answers questions like, what do I do when the godless prevail? I'm sure you've never asked that question before, have you? How should a believer respond to persecution? I mean, does God really care that the world around me seems to be growing worse and worse and more hostile? And when those hostilities actually overtake God's people and, and seem to be victorious, does that mean that, that God is lost or He's forsaken His people? What, what does that mean? Questions like, where is God when His people suffer? Will He deliver them every time? How will He deliver them? Is it always God's plan to deliver them? Daniel is a model of godliness and faithfulness for us in evil times. And I mean a good one. He's been where we are, are, are headed. I mean, you realize Daniel lived during the time of Ezekiel and Habakkuk and, and Jeremiah and Zephaniah. Daniel heard the prophet Jeremiah preach in Jerusalem about the judgment that, that was coming. And then he experienced the judgment. He experienced what he heard Jeremiah preach about. Daniel was raised in the revivals of the godly king Josiah. When Josiah went through the land and, and, and he tore down all of the Asherah poles and, and he purged the land of, of all of this, the, the false religion that was there. And then the book of the law was discovered. And, and Jeremiah had the, uh, the, the priest uh, read the book and he, he tears his robes because God's people were not following what, what was found in the Bible, and revival takes place in Israel. And Daniel was raised under that revival, and then Daniel was deported under the capitulation of the cowardly king Jehoiakim. Daniel's days were a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies, and yet God, through, through the prophet Ezekiel, says that there are three men in all of the Bible that are models of faithfulness. Job, Noah, and Daniel. Now think about that list from Ezekiel 14. I mean, you know about Noah and the flood. He was a model of faithfulness, wasn't he? I mean, he proclaimed God's word to... I mean, the whole world was unbelieving and perished. That's a pretty good model of faithfulness. Job, you know the story of Job. <laughs> I mean, he faced fire and wind and Satan himself. and He remained faithful. And Daniel is, is in that list. You know what's even more amazing about this list, besides the fact that Daniel's included with, with Noah and Job? Daniel is still alive whenever God says this about him. Daniel is alive whenever Ezekiel says the, the, you know, these words. And that, it's one thing to look at a man's life after he's gone and calculate his impact, but that's some extraordinary praise when God says that about a man before he ever dies and, and you know, anyone ever reads the book that he's writing. Daniel is one of those rare individuals in Scripture where, about which nothing negative is ever recorded. That's a man you should listen to and a man that you should, should learn from. And Daniel wants to teach us, which is why he, he, he wrote. Secondly, its goal is to tell you what, what's, coming next, what's coming next. I mean, Daniel foretells what will happen on the earth on, as it moves towards its end, and it also tells you how it's coming. There will be a reign of God's true king, the son of man, and he'll establish an earthly kingdom. I mean, Daniel is not only an example, it's eschatology. And as I said, the prophecy sets the divine timeline for the Bible, Old and New Testament. There are only two books in the Bible that meet the qualifications of pure eschatology, and that's Daniel and the, and the book of Revelation. 
I mean, there are other prophetic references and portions like in Ezekiel and in Isaiah and Joel and in Zechariah, but only Daniel and Revelation are apocalypses given by God through a mediator to a seer, in one case John and the other case Daniel, to unveil fully his future events. That's the purpose. And Daniel doesn't give an ordinary prediction. I mean, the reason that the liberal scholars and scoffers attack the book of Daniel is because Daniel is that specific. I mean, the detailed prophecy, it's the most detailed prophecy in all of the Bible. You realize the book of Daniel predicts the very day that Jesus Christ presents himself as the, on the triumphal entry? I mean, to the day. It's amazing. And it's not just for Jewish people, but unbelieving Gentiles. The prophetic section of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, spans from 605 B.C. all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the establishment of His earthly kingdom. I mean, if you want to know the future you, and you want to know how you can be faithful in it, you must look to the book of Daniel. It's what it's written for. Which leads us to the, the second question of why study it? Why study the book of Daniel? That's what it is. Personal, it's prophetic, it's revelation from God. You should study it to be informed, to be encouraged, and, and to be faithful. To be informed, it tells you what's coming. To be encouraged, it, it declares to you a God who ordains and orchestrates human history. And so you can be faithful in it. It helps you learn how you must respond in, in evil times. You realize the Bible declares that God reveals the future to His people. That shouldn't be anything surprising to you. If this same God can, can create, He surely knows the future. And Scripture is the only place that God declares the future. I had a, met a lady this past week that wanted to share a prophetic utterance with, with me. And she did. And... Um, she asked me if I wanted to receive that prophetic utterance, and I said, no, I think I'll stick with the Bible. She said, you don't believe in prophetic, uh, prophetic utterances? And I said, I absolutely do. They're in the pages of Scripture. But God doesn't speak outside of the pages of, of Scripture. Because how do I know whether your prophetic utterance is from you or Jesus or the devil or as my seminary professor used to say, bad pizza? You don't know. But if it's in the pages of Scripture, I can exegete it. I know the context. I know the language. It's fixed. And yet in the pages of Scripture, God declares the end from the beginning, just like He says. And while scoffers mock that possibility, Christians take that as reality. It informs us. And yet Scripture doesn't just provide information. It's to provide information so we might be transformed. And so Daniel informs us of what's coming so we can be encouraged and so, so we can be faithful when those times come. I mean, doesn't it encourage you whenever you, you read the prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ? I mean, Isaiah 53, about the cross and, and, and Jesus' death and resurrection. Zechariah 9, which, which talks about the, the, the triumphal entry, how it's going to happen. Or Micah 5, that says Jesus, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. Well, you know, Revelation and Daniel are for that purpose too. It's to encourage you that God knows and that He plans and that He ordains and that He orchestrates. And if He can do that, if God has the ability to do that, then He has the ability to preserve His people as well. And so we can trust Him and we can remain faithful, however that plan unfolds. That's the reason He gives you all of those prophecies, not necessarily to make you know, end times charts, it's so you can understand and see that God does this so you can be encouraged to be faithful. You know, the Jewish people are one of the most, uh, the greatest evidences for God and the, the truthfulness of the Bible there is. I mean, for thousands of years, they've been maligned and exiled and killed, uh, you know, attempted exterminations and deported, and yet they remain today unique. One of my favorite moments on, on an Israel trip is, is when we get to travel to Masada, where the Romans besieged the, the mountaintop. If you don't know the story of Masada, it's fascinating. It was actually a, a group of a remnant uh, Jewish rebels 
that, that held out in, in Masada that, that, that actually started, this, this revolt starts in the Maccabean period, the, that Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, and, and yet it, it ends in the you know, 60s AD, and the Romans besiege Masada, this, they squash the final remnant of the Jewish rebellion. And then here we are, 2,000 years later, visiting the ruins of Masada. And there's a star of David flying over Masada, not a Roman eagle. In fact, there's no Rome anymore. <laughs> and all of Masada it, it, and all of the Roman ruins are uh, there are, are encased inside the sovereign nation of Israel. And that same God who promises to preserve Israel promises to preserve you as His church. And that same God will give those Jewish people all the land and the earthly kingdom that He promised. And and that's why we we should study it. So if that's why, well, how is this information laid out? I mean, how is the book of Daniel structured? I mean, if you flew over Daniel, um, what would you see? Well, you would see an overview. You'd see how the contours of Daniel unfolds. You would also see two different languages. And then you would see shining bright, a key verse from chapter 4. It's been said, if, if you see how the book of Daniel is laid out, it preaches itself. Somebody said that to me, and after hours of study, I, I beg to differ with them. It doesn't preach itself. But it is true. That once you see Daniel, what, what Daniel is trying to do, the, the message of the book becomes, becomes very clear. There's a very clear structure uh, to Daniel. My friend Joel James says, Daniel has a central theme, and once you grasp that, it will help you make out the structure of the, of the book. And the first half of the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, is, a, is this historical narrative. It tells the stories that you probably know well from, from Sunday school. We're telling the, the story of God's deliverance of four Hebrew youths and, 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 and hence His people. And then the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 10, are prophetic visions. Visions that seem confusing, but, but they're not whenever you actually walk through them. Visions that God gives to Daniel to, to tell us what's coming in the future, specifically when Messiah comes the first and the second time and He sets up His earthly kingdom. Daniel structures it that way. He puts the stories up front in chapters 1 through 6, and then the visions in the second half of the book, because we'll need to apply those lessons from the stories whenever the visions of chapter 7 through 12 actually come true. That's the reason the stories are front-loaded. And the book's divisions follow the language it's written in as well. I mean, Daniel serves as God's mouthpiece to both Jewish and the Gentile world. And so you would expect the book of Daniel to be written in both Jewish and Gentile language. And that's exactly what you find. Daniel speaks the, the language, what he writes about. God uses Daniel to declare what he is doing in the time period it was written and what he'll do in the future for the Jews. So it's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And some people fret over the language divisions as, as if Daniel was having some kind of bilingual meltdown whenever he wrote. But the back and forth is not arbitrary at all. The, the language he uses is based on the focus of the story. I mean, chapter 1 of Daniel is, is in Hebrew, where, where you have the introduction and, and the faithfulness of Hebrew youths who refuse to devile, defile themselves. And then chapters 2 through 7 is written in Aramaic because the focus of the story is Babylon and the kings of Babylon. And then in chapters 8 through 12, it's back to Hebrew because it's about the kingdom coming for Israel. and So it begins in Hebrew in chapter 1. It turns to Aramaic whenever Daniel is writing about Babylon. It returns to Hebrew when, when it starts talking about the Jewish people's futures. And so while liberal scholars try to use that to cast doubt on the authenticity of the book, it's actually one of the most confirming features. I mean, Aramaic was the international language of the day. It was the lingua franca like, uh, like Koine Greek was. I mean, you, you, had a, you had a kingdom coming together with people with different languages. And so there's a central language that, 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 that is the language of the, the nation, and that was Aramaic. 
So it makes total sense that Daniel's memoirs from Babylon would be written in that language. And it makes total sense also that when God tells the Jewish people his comforting prophecies about their promised future, he whispers that to them in their covenant tongue in Hebrew. The key verse is actually spoken by a pagan king in the book of Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 through 35. You have a Bible, you can underline it or you can look on the screen. This is what Nebuchadnezzar says after he's humbled for taking too much pride in in his own doing. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And Listen to what he says. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are of no account, for... For he does according to his will among the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can fend off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That verse summarizes exactly what Daniel wants us to learn from the book. What will we learn as we walk through the the book of Daniel? Well, you'll learn three things. And that pagan king announced them. You'll learn that God is sovereign over all nations. His dominion is everlasting. Whether that's Nebuchadnezzar or whether that's Joe Biden or whoever comes after. You'll learn God is faithful to His people. His kingdom endures from generation to generation to generation. And God is bringing His king and kingdom He does according to His will in heaven and on earth. Those are the three themes of the book of Daniel. One overarching theme. God is sovereign over all nations. And then two secondary ones. The first one is prominent in every single chapter of the book of Daniel. And the other two are are secondary. But all three are necessary. You understand all three of these lessons that, that, that we'll learn to navigate faithfulness in future life. That's the title I gave the book of Daniel. Faithfulness. In future life, God's sovereignty over all men and all nations. God sends Judah into captivity. God protects Daniel and his friends. God gives dreams and interpretations. God raises up pagan kings and disposes them. And God will bring his king and his kingdom and nothing will stop it. Todd Dykstra, who taught the book of Daniel and expositors for us in his exposition, traces the main theme very well. I mean, when we get to chapter 1, you'll see that the key word in chapter 1 is, is give. It's the word Natan, where we get our name, biblical name, Nathan. It's not ultimately Nebuchadnezzar's military prowess or, or the power of his gods, but God who gave Jehoiakim into his hand in chapter 1, verse 2. Daniel resisted the pressure to compromise his convictions, but God was the one who gave him favor in the sight of Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff. And God also gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and intelligence. To, to Daniel, God gave ability to interpret dreams and visions. In chapter 2, God enabled Daniel to to describe and interpret the king's dreams, something that was impossible even for the wisest and noblest wise men of Babylon, which is where the Magi came from, by the way. This vision revealed the fact that God was the one who appoints and disposes the monarchs of human kingdoms. There are four kingdoms, we'll see. The fifth one, the eternal kingdom, will be set up by God Himself. Chapter 3, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego controlled the forces of nature and delivered them from a fiery furnace. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a mighty tree that was cut to the ground proved that God is ruler 
over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Eugene Merrill said a human monarch might have rule and indeed may do so in in line with the purposes of God, but he must recognize the source and limitations of his authority. The sovereignty of kings is a sovereignty derived from the king of kings. Chapter 5, Belshazzar failed to recognize uh, what his father Nebuchadnezzar learned, and and God removed the kingdom from him. Chapter 6, Daniel personally witnesses the sovereignty of God as he emerges unharmed from the lion's den. Chapter 7, the vision portrays frightening beasts who threaten God's kingdom and His sovereign rule, but Daniel is reassured that absolutely nothing will thwart that. Chapters 8 through 12, the visions demonstrate God's sovereignty in the restoration of His people on Israel and in the future. It's breathtaking whenever you look at it as a whole. My favorite quotes, Gerard von Rad said, God, God summons world empires as a man whistles for an animal in the book of Daniel. And God teaches Israel and us that He does not suffer defeat whenever He allows Israel or any of His other adventures uh, ventures to fail. He's providentially working something greater, a greater purpose that, that He'll fulfill in the end. And you need to remember that whenever you look around today. I mean, don't think that, that God is, is somehow failing. He, he's not. He, he's working a greater purpose in any loss that you see. I mean, God over and over in Daniel and throughout the Bible purposely allows Gentiles to dominate Israel. He intentionally permits the wicked to gain temporary victory. I mean, he tells us through Daniel, he allows Babylon to do this in 605, and Medo-Persia in 539, and Greece in 331, and then Rome in 136 B.C., all the way up through almost 500 A.D., and he'll do that over and over again all the way to the second coming. And all of those stages are laid out in the book of Daniel from chapters 2 through 7 in the the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the vision of Daniel. And that truth is comforting when you live in trying times with wicked wicked rulers like, like today. And during those times, God will be faithful to His own. God's faithfulness to those who are faithful to Him couldn't happen without His sovereign control. But, but He's orchestrating all things to His appointed end, and, and we can stand up with steel rods in our ankles when the wicked winds blow. And God stands by those who stand for Him. And He may deliver you out of the fire, and He may deliver you through the fire, but God's will will be done. And you see that in the book of Daniel. Daniel provides that example for us, how he will not defile himself in chapter 1 and how God rescues the three Hebrew youths in in chapter 3 and chapter 6. God rescues an older Daniel and God cares for those who are faithful to him. And the wicked times that we have, as as gut-wrenching and as horrible as, as they are, are opportunities for you to remain faithful. And you will have the opportunity to prove whether you're faithful or not in these times. Chapter 4, God humbles a proud king and restores him. In chapter 5, God humbles a proud king and removes him. You'll need spiritual metal from Daniel to stand. There will be no dainty Christians in the coming days. No doctrinal dummies are going to survive the onslaught of the, uh, of the lies and the just overwhelming nature. All the positive thinking and programmed mega ministries will not survive the days that are coming, the days that are described in the book of Daniel. Neither will you survive if you eat the the king's meats of the culture or like the modern dishes that are being served up today from the race peddlers and everybody else. Only a biblical church will stand. Only faithful Christians will be able to survive. And you need the book of Daniel in order to be able to stand in these days. You must be that kind of of Christian. The faithful theme of Daniel is that God's kingdom is is coming. He's sovereign, He's faithful, and He's bringing about His king and kingdom. The boundaries of how that kingdom will unfold are very clear in chapters 8 through 12. I'll show you when we get there. Chapter 8 and 9 is like the, is like the percussion line. It's like the heading bug of the, of the entire book. 
All the other chapters play to chapters 8 and 9. There are bad times coming for Israel. Two specific periods in, that, that are coming in the future when, when, the, when the temple is, is defiled by a pagan king. One's happened and one is going to happen. And then chapters 11 and 12, more visions describing the historical events that surround those two defilings. Daniel covers an unknown number of years. The prophecy focuses on three eras, the events of Daniel's day, the, the times of, of Christ, and then the, the, the end of the age, the return of the Messiah, when God's people are going to be persecuted. It'll seem like there'll be no hope for them. And, and the Messiah will come and he'll destroy God's enemies. And The only era that Daniel does not specifically cover is the, is the church age. It just kind of stretches the coming of Christ to the to the second coming, because Revelation covers that time for us. Stretches from the Roman period to the return uh, of Christ. And the coming of Christ is all over Daniel. I mean, the stone cut out without hands in chapter 2. He's the one like the Son of Man in chapter 7. He's the anointed one of chapter 9. He's the one who rules over, over the kingdom in chapter 12. And at the end... Daniel declares God will, on an exact time schedule, rescue his faithful ones from a terrible and violent persecuting king and establish his eternal kingdom ruled over by one like the Son of Man, the Messiah. There's much to learn from this great book. And we'll learn it together. You know why we read Isaiah chapter 46? Because it's talking about these days and the God that this book reveals. Listen to Isaiah 46 that we read again. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose shall stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey from a far-off land, a man to fulfill my purpose, and that was Nebuchadnezzar. And what I have said, that I will bring about. And what I have planned, I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are now far from my righteousness, I'm bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor, to Israel. You don't think God so has a plan for Israel? It's right there. God has a plan for you. And the first part of God's plan for you is for you to know the Lord Jesus Christ, this one this book talks about. I mean, there... There are only two ways to live, in God or outside of God, and you're already outside of God because of your sin. And God has made a way for you to be right with Him through His Son. So before any of this ever unfolds, if, if you're outside of Christ today, you, you'll face this God who can declare the end from the beginning. And, and the Bible says that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You live... And then you face God. And you can either face Him in Jesus Christ or outside of Jesus Christ. It's the first thing that God would tell you to do if you don't know the Lord. If you claim to know the Lord, you look at your life. The Bible says you'll know them by their fruits. How you live and what you do is just an expression of what's, what's in your heart. And so you can think and say, I'm right with God, but you live in a completely different way, a contrary way to what Scripture says. The Bible says, let God be true and every man be a liar. We say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness. We lie and do not the truth. It is the deeds that come out of your life that prove who you really are and where you'll be on that day of judgment. It's the first thing. Jesus Christ, come to Him. If you know Him, then the Bible says to, to be informed, to be encouraged, and be faithful. Learn. Form Christ in you. Study the book. There'll be things in the book of Daniel that aren't easy to understand. You'll have to read. You'll have to work. And I'll try to cut it up, 
cut the steak up as, 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 as small as possible, but you're going to have to chew it. You will not survive this day drinking you know, froth or, or, or milk. I'm not just saying that because I like exposition. You must have the meat of the Word to be able to stand. You will not go without a meal, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Maybe you'll skip one, but you'll not go a day. And yet, sometimes we treat the Bible as if it's just something that we can take or leave. You must have it in these days. The winds that are blowing are evil. And then you use your life. Be encouraged. Whatever you face... The God of this book will preserve you. He may not close the, cl- cl- close the mouth of the lion or pluck you out of the furnace, but you'll have the same attitude that Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. King, I don't know whether God will deliver us from this furnace, but I know this, God will deliver us one way or the other. And that's the kind of faith that you can have. If you know Christ, and if you feed on His Word, God will strengthen you. Amen? I can't wait for the book of Daniel. Won't you bow your heads? I don't know why you've come today, but the Lord knew. And I pray His Word would stick in your heart, haunt you in the middle of the night, until you yield to His purposes. The way of a transgressor is hard. Thank you, Father, that you have been so gracious and merciful to us sinners. Thank you that you have provided that way through Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to have a hunger for your word and, and not be weak, be strong, put forth the effort, quit ourselves like men. So we might be strong and, and learn from you and bring you great glory. Thank you for the book of Daniel. Prepare our appetites for it. Teach us much. And help us to stand in these trying times in Jesus' name. Amen.